0: Do not forsake me Oh my darling On this our wedding day Do not forsake me Oh my darling Wait
1: And welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm Andy
2: and I'm John, and we've been going down the American Film Institute's 100 Years of Film Scores, their list of purportedly the top 25 scores in American cinema history. We have finally cracked the AFI's top 10.
1: That's right, we are down to the number 10 score, which means that on this episode we'll be discussing Dimitri Tiomkin's score to the classic 1952 western High Noon.
2: High Noon was written by Carl Foreman, based on the magazine story The Tin Star by John W. Cunningham. It was produced by Stanley Kramer, and it was directed by Fred Zinneman. Andy, tell us a bit about High Noon.
1: High Noon is a Western shot in stark black and white and playing out in approximately real time about the marshal of a small town who is forced to face outlaws alone when no one in the town will stand with him.
2: The movie stars Gary Cooper as that Marshal, Will Kane, and Grace Kelly as his new bride. It also features supporting turns from Lloyd Bridges as a deputy and Kati Hurado as a principled businesswoman, who, it turns out, has a past with both the good guy and the bad guy.
1: Yeah, so the bad guy is someone that Marshal Will Kane put away years ago and at the time swore to get revenge if he ever got out. And the bad news comes he got out today and is arriving on the noon train. And despite having reached retirement and a new marriage, rather than run away, Cain stays to fight like a man and is chagrined to find that no one in town has quite the courage or the principles he does. Good enough? Good enough. So if you've ever listened to one of these episodes before, you know we always start with basically the main title of the movie at the beginning of the episode. Right. You know, you always hear the first thing in the movie and the first thing in the movie is usually a pretty significant thing. And this one is different. Uh-huh. Because
2: because of words
1: 'Cause there's someone talking over it.
2: Well, not just talking, Andy.
1: There's someone singing. There's someone balladeering their way through it.
2: Yeah, you can do this thing with your voice where if you sustain <laughs> talking <laughs> turns into singing. Note
1: talking. Note talking.
2: Yeah, somebody is note talking all the way through our intro here this time. I hope you were able to understand what we were saying.
1: I know, it was confusing. And uh, it was tempting to put some other music there. But what else could you put from this movie?
2: We have to put that up at the top because that music is really what this score is about.
1: Yeah. The main theme from this movie has a guy singing in it. No question.
2: That's right. That really is emblematic of what the music for this movie is and what it's doing. It's that song. Yeah. You like that song, Andy?
1: It's an odd song. Here's the thing. You made reference to it last time. You were like, oh, do not forsake me. Everyone knows Song from High Noon starts with, do not forsake me, oh my darling. I hope they do now. But now I got to ask you. Yeah. Do you think everyone knows anything else about this song? Do they know the rest (laughs) of the song? Could you have sung the rest of the song before this week?
2: Not before this week, no. Do
1: not forsake
0: me, oh my darling.
2: You know, maybe I had the next line, on this our wedding day. On this our wedding day. But I didn't remember all the rest of those lyrics, and I didn't remember how specific those lyrics are as to the exact plot of this movie.
0: The noonday train will bring Frank Miller If I'm a man, I must be brave And I must face that deadly killer a in
1: my well there's a reason maybe that you didn't remember how specific they are because the radio version downgrades their specificity
2: aha the radio version you say
1: well yes there's a different version the pop version of it
2: all right well maybe we should back up now and say how there came to be a pop version of it Uh, Sure. So this is a concept that, you know, is very familiar to us now that there would be a song associated with a movie. Maybe you hear it over the end credits, or maybe you don't even hear it. But it's, you know, so and so pop star is putting their take on the movie out into the popular culture world. And you can consume that totally separate from the movie. And that's sort of a very done thing. Now, it's a very ordinary way of marketing. And I think all of that really does kind of draw its lineage from this movie. It kind of arose in this movie a little bit by accident, a little bit serendipitously.
1: Yeah, I think they had this idea to anchor the movie to a ballad, like an old Western cowboy-style ballad, for the movie's own purposes. I think they just thought that would give it form. I heard this story that the editor, just to give a sort of temp-track sense of how the opening might play, laid in Burl Ives singing Ghost Riders in the Sky. An old
0: cowpoke went riding out one dark and windy day upon a ridge he rested as he went along his way and they
1: saw that and they were like yeah this is the feeling we want but we want him to be singing something you know relevant to this movie so let's write something for this movie and then the movie will follow from there i don't think they were doing it cuz they were like oh this will get radio play and the marketing department will be really happy with us i don't think they were thinking about that
2: and no i think that they were invoking what had i think long been a western tradition of a ballad Song, You know, an epic story about right and wrong and the good guy and the bad guy and tragedy and drama that play out in these long story songs. There'd been a long tradition of this and they were very, very popular. And they kind of go in the same world as the kind of morality play that most Westerns wind up being. So yeah, it seems like a great decision to give it the sense of being this everlasting epic that relates to human nature by tapping into the idea of there being a cowboy ballad. It definitely gets at those feelings. It gives it that weight of, you know, lore behind it.
1: Yeah, it's definitely smart, especially for this movie, which I think is even more functioning on an allegorical level than most Westerns. I mean, it's a pretty strange Western I remember when I saw this as a kid, I found it surprisingly boring because I just thought, well, it's going to be about a gunfight. (laughs) And, like, the gunfight does not happen until the last five minutes of the movie. And the rest of it is them talking about the ethics of who's going to participate in the gunfight or not. That's really what the movie is about. So yeah, I think that giving it allegorical weight is a pretty important job that this ballad is doing. And also, I think it's smart for this movie about, you know, one man and whether he stands alone or whether anyone will stand with him. You know, the lonesome voice of the balladeer and his guitar somehow is kind of the right sound. And don't you think they hired Tex Ritter because he sounds like what Gary Cooper might have sounded like if you'd ever dared to sing. (laughs) That's plausible. I think it's a good kind of vocal approximation of Gary Cooper.
2: All right, I'll buy that. But yeah, in the marketing for this film, they absolutely did try to seize on, you know, this is a different sort of Western. This isn't just a shoot-em-up Western for kids who are into, you know, cowboys and Indians and gunfights. This is an adult thinking man's Western. Yeah, so I think they were aware of how this was a bit of a departure as well, as they were trying to put this movie out there. But... As they were trying to put this movie out there, they showed it at some test preview screenings. And it did not do well.
1: I think for that reason, I mean, because it takes itself pretty seriously. Mm -hmm. It's very talky. It's very grim and sort of has this noir outlook of like, ain't nobody going to help you. I suspect that it's being not your ordinary Western was part of why it didn't really land. Who wants this?
2: Well, I think there's another important aspect to why those previews didn't go so well that we should definitely circle back to. But so anyway, they didn't go well, and now Dmitry Tyomkin springs into action and he was this really canny wheeler dealer. You know, he had this keen sort of business sense. He had an instinct to politic in the industry and without, and those instincts kicked in here, and he had the idea. Well, he's got this song, he wrote this song. And it is threaded all throughout the movie. The movie is really built around this song. So he bought the rights to this song back from the studio. And he took it and shopped it around to record companies and to singers. And on his own initiative, he produced and put out the radio version of this song sung by Frankie Lane, who was an incredibly popular country and western singer at the time. Do not forsake me, oh my darling,
0: on this our way day. Do not forsake me, oh my darling.
1: And that's the version that you've probably heard, if you haven't been watching the movie lately, that's the songified version of this song. That version doesn't mention Frank Miller, the bad guy, by name.
2: Right. I do not know what fate awaits me. And one of the many titles of the movie says, The Noonday Train Will Bring Frank Miller. And then at the end of the song is, Until I Shoot Frank Miller Dead. You know, those are the exact things that happen in the movie. And there they are, uh, getting sung right up top.
1: Right. So for the radio version, it changes to, I Must Face a Man Who Hates Me. Mm. Which is, you know... All right, more general.
2: Not a lot more, though. (laughs) You don't find out that much about Frank Miller. He's just a man who hates me, pretty much, is his character description.
1: Right, but a song on the radio that tells a story can tell a story about, you know, some characters that you invent in your head while you're listening to the song. So (laughs) they just had to take out a little of the specificity. Did you notice the other change they made, that the third bar in the movie yes, is a short bar. Right. And on the radio they were like, I don't think the audience can handle that. We better straighten this out.
2: Yeah, let's play this back to back. So Tex Ritter sings in the beginning
0: Do not forsake me, oh my darling.
2: Two, three, four, There's a beat missing me. there. That melodic phrase had fewer beats and rather than delay its start so that it landed in the same place on the same grid of four beats, just dropped a beat out of the texture. And yeah, Frankie Lane, when he sings it, he squares that out and just draws out the words to fill that extra time instead Do of removing safety, that extra time. Oh my darling. One on two, this our way. one
1: day. I mean, talk about being a craven coward. (laughs) (laughs) Don't you think they should have stuck with the version with the bar of three? I think that's a better tune. I like it so much better with that short bar.
2: Yeah, I do too.
1: And I think the audience could have handled that on the radio. Would have been good for them.
2: (laughs) Okay, so anyway, yeah, as we said, this Frankie Lane version goes out and it becomes a spectacular hit. Because people love these songs that talk about the ballad of the lone gunman in the old west and you know and it's a catchy tune so people are excited about this song for months before the movie comes out and then that becomes this crucial element of how they market the movie when it does come out here's high noon featuring the ballad of high noon as sung by frankie lane it was a big selling point
1: Yeah, which is crazy, and then the sort of crazy serendipity of that basically completely changed the movie industry. Yeah. It suddenly sort of had this weird, incestuous relationship with the recording industry, where like, your sales will push ours, or ours will push yours, and we gotta try and make sure that everything that we write does double duty. And this ended up being sort of trouble for the whole world of film scores within 15 years, because they were like, you know, if we're not selling a song, the score's not doing what it needs to do. This is just the very beginning of that whole process.
2: Yeah, it's the inception of it. And there's been a lot of writing and reflecting about how this leads to a dark age of film music, which is belied by the great scores during this time that we've already talked about. But yeah, absolutely, there becomes this emphasis on tie-ins and marketing and commercialization you know, it sort of becomes, scores become Happy Meals that have to have a toy in them.
1: Right. I think the dark age is that producers started seeing the score as a potential cash cow if it only has something commercial enough in it. Mm -hmm. And then they're like, you can find a way to make a pop song happen. Yeah. And then there's this sort of anti-artistic pressure to do that. Of course, sometimes people uh, would find elegant solutions to that pressure. (laughs) And then a lot of times they wouldn't and they would do strange awkward things.
2: Yeah, like remember when we talked about that pop song that didn't quite get made out of the love theme in Ben-Hur. That's right. I think that was absolutely, you know, a producer trying to follow through on, well, let's see if we can high noon something out of this.
1: Right. Which is at least a kind of grudging, well, we're obligated to give it a shot. And like, we don't really think this is going to happen. There actually, when we talked about Vertigo, we didn't even mention this, but there is, you know, it didn't get out anywhere. It never got recorded. But there is someone's attempt to put lyrics to the theme of Vertigo and sort of square it out and make it into a song where they sing about some mysterious woman called Madeline to the tune Madeline, which is so hilariously <laughs> wrong-headed yeah. that anyone did that but the studio you know just as a matter of course would pay people to take a stab at this the actual thing we've talked about in this podcast series so far is in the pink panther where there is a song yeah <laughs> and it does get sort of incorporated into the score. And remember, we said then, you know, given that they were going to make a song be kind of the backbone of this score, I think they picked a pretty good song. Sure. That's what I said at the time anyway. Yeah,
2: it was a good song. I like that song.
1: It was a good song on its own right, and it was a suitable song for... For
2: what the movie wanted to feel like.
1: Doing what that movie needed to get done. And I think that... This song is pretty clearly a suitable song for what this movie needs. Yeah. That's faint praise, but <laughs> at least let's say that first. Do you agree?
2: Yeah, I I like this song. I like this song fine. I've definitely been singing it to myself in the shower since <laughs> since I watched this movie.
1: Okay, but back to my original question. Are you singing more than the first two lines?
2: Yeah, well I went and learned this song so that I could <laughs> sing it in the shower.
1: Do you even sing the part that goes Oh bum 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 dum? I gotta say that part feels pretty clunky to me every time I get there grave. in the movie and otherwise. Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, to be torn with love and duty Supposing I lose my fat beauty Look at that big hand move along near yeah, in high noon He made a vow while in the state's prison thought it would be my life or his And I'm not afraid of death But oh, what will I do if you leave?
1: me Can you defend it?
2: No, I don't defend it. And I do think that we start to see into Tompkins, you know, kind of grand scheme here where he knew he was going to make score material out of stuff that was in the song. So maybe he seeded it back in there. You know, he wanted to have a sort of rhythmic motor element that he could pluck out of the song and put in the score. So maybe I can guess that, like, that got in there because he was working backwards. That dum-ba-dum-bum-ba-ba-dum-bum-ba-dum all over the score, and he uses it for kind of motion things. He uses it for the train. He uses it for when they're riding in the wagon.
1: He uses it for the sound of trouble all the time when the bad guys ride through town.
2: Yeah, it sort of winds up being the bad guys theme. Right. But, uh... Do you think it
1: works? No, I don't like that (laughs) in the song. I agree that he was kind of playing the game both ways. I better make this song usable. right? And I don't think either end of that deal worked out well enough for it to be the right deal.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. So yeah, there are these rhythmic lines of it, and then the sort of the resolution of that little section, the capping line after those rhythmic lines is this more melodic, less note repetitive bit that goes ba 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 bum Right.
0: Look at that big hand move along near yeah, in high
2: noon. And I feel like there's a bunch of times in this score where he's trying to use this section of the song as score material to score some kind of tense action and then he's kind of trapped into playing this lyrical thing that sounds like a happy phrase from a pop song like in the climactic gunfight Gary Cooper's running around trying to find places to hide, ducking behind buildings and stuff, and guys are shooting at him, and we hear I'm like, okay, this is tense this is tense, I guess, fine and then you know he just keeps going through the song motions and then we hear blah 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 and I was totally taken out of it I, I just thought that phrase of the song it's not helping the picture here
1: almost every time he used that bit of material for the bad guys I thought pretty clear that you are assigning this to them but it just doesn't sound like them I mean it's a bunch of major chords noon train on time uh yes sir that is, I think so, sir. They're hanging around the station sort of I making trouble be. with the station master, and you Mr. hear Pierce? like do, da, dum, do, da, dum, oh, you do do know, da, Miller? Da. it just doesn't sound right. Mr. Pierce? Mr. Colby.
2: Yeah, exactly. Major chords. And the thing is, Dmitry Tyomkin I think is absolutely capable of writing really sensitive music and really skillful music, and I think there is a lot of sensitive and skillful music in this score. But Yeah, I mean, not to give the game away too much, but I wonder if he sort of loses the authority to make these sensitive, skillful statements by just constantly dipping back into this major chord-driven pop song.
1: Yeah. Okay, so there's kind of two different things to talk about here. There's the use of the song itself in the movie, which does get used throughout the movie, and then there's the use of the song material in the orchestral score. The song itself, I think, is actually pretty good for the movie. Does a pretty good job helping the movie along. When it's actually the song, when it's actually this arrangement with an accordion, a guitar, a guy singing, and a weird clip-clop effect, which is played on the Novacord, which I did a little spiel about when we were talking about...
2: A Streetcar Named Desire. A streetcar
1: Named Desire. Who
2: said it was one of the very first synthesizers, and that Alex North had set the settings to make it sound kind of ghostly and carousel-ish. Yeah, and here it got set to be like a percussion instrument.
1: Yeah, Tjumpkin says that the pianist in the orchestra actually suggested this to him and showed that if you made a cluster with it, basically just slap a bunch of keys at once, it would make kind of a thunk sound that you couldn't really place what the pitches were. Yeah, it's this cool kind of early electronic effect that you can't really tell what it was. I didn't know until I read. I thought maybe they were doing some kind of trick with a guitar and a microphone. I had to read up that it was a synthesizer. Yeah, it
2: definitely sounds clip-cloppy. Same with me. I thought it was some sort of bizarre clip-cloppy drum effect.
1: Well, I think that that weird sort of unplaceable effect, it's either a heartbeat or a clip-clop, or the ticking clock we'll talk about as a recurring element in the score here. It's some kind of pulse. I think that works really well for setting a kind of tone that, yeah, Gary Cooper is kind of stuck with and has to solve the problems created for him by this place where he's stuck, and that's the sound of it. Hello, Mrs. Fuller. Is Sam in?
2: No. No, he isn't.
1: Do you
0: know where he is, Mrs. Fuller? It's important to me that I find him.
2: I think he's in church, Will. He's gone to church.
1: Without you? That works. I'm going to go in a little while. And so this pulse is the first thing we hear in the movie, and the ballad is right there at the beginning, and it sets the tone and it kind of places you in the movie in a way that I think is basically successful. Yeah, sure.
2: I buy it at the beginning. I buy it at the end. Uh huh. You know, when we got to the end, I thought, yeah, okay, sure, play the song now. And if we hadn't been hearing it the whole movie long, boy, it might really pack a punch now to hear it again. But...
1: uh, Okay, go ahead. Complain about it. You don't think it should be in the middle, huh?
2: Well, here's my issue. I don't mind there being pop songs in the middle of the movie. I don't mind there being singing. It just struck me as weird that (laughs) there was somebody singing about the specific things (laughs) that were happening right then in the movie. Like, Grace Kelly, you know, walks out of the courtroom... As though to There's forsake to Gary Cooper's character.
1: No, I won't be here when it's over.
2: And he does Perhaps not want her wait to wait forsake him. To he wants her to wife not wife. forsake him.
0: I say it's too long <laughs> to wait. I won't and right it. at that moment, Maybe. we hear Tex Ritter singing, I mean, Do not me now, forsake I'll me, oh my darling. I've got to stay.
2: Isn't that odd? Isn't that an odd phenomenon to have somebody singing the thing that is exactly happening? And then, you know, later on they sing about the noonday train will bring Frank Miller because Frank Miller is coming. And then it just happens (laughs) again and again in the movie that they're singing the exact thing. That's That's happening. happening.
1: Yeah, I can't deny that that is pretty odd.
2: I mean, can you imagine if that happened in some of the other movies that we've talked about? (laughs) I think it would really stick out as a weird thing. Yeah, I can't deny it. Like, you were saying how dopey and wrongheaded it was for them to try to write a song about Madeline for Vertigo, Mm. but that would have been, you know, just for radio play outside the movie. Imagine if, as you are actually watching the movie, Jimmy Stewart's, you know, moping around San Francisco, and he sees Kim Novak, and you actually heard Uh somebody singing on the soundtrack... That woman kind of looks like Madeline Why don't I make her dye her hair Cause this obsession I've been battling And that cadaver I've gotta have her Unless she's high up in the air mm-hmm. Yeah, I, um I went, I, I went and I wrote some little songs, I see Andy.
1: you did I see you prepared some material At first I thought, oh, is John making this up on the spot? And then I thought, no, He's <laughs> <it's> not <laughs> I thought it was such
2: a strange phenomenon. I just wanted to see how it would feel in some of the other scores we've talked about if you did the same thing. Yeah, I I did a couple of them just to to see what it would be like. Maybe we'll play some more later.
1: All right, well, I'm not going to stop you from, uh, you know, singing your parody lyrics, but I will say that even as I cannot disagree that (laughs) it is really goofy when you point out what it is, it makes a certain kind of sense to me, and I want to give props to ned washington who wrote the lyrics because the tune came before the lyrics Tompkins says so clearly in his memoir he says that he wrote this tune to sound like a cowboy tune and then he was like ned i don't know what you're gonna do with this and ned washington worked this out and i think it's really cleverly worked out in that sure do not forsake me oh my darling sounds like an old western song it does fit the action of the movie but it i think brilliantly is not really the key to the action in this movie. If you think that that is what this movie is about, you're not really watching the movie. His relationship with Grace Kelly is not really the key element in Uh, the story. Wouldn't you agree?
2: Yeah, fair enough. I think Do Not Forsake Me winds up being sort of metaphorically applied to the town as a whole. You know, each and every person in the town that he talks to sort of winds up forsaking him, and she's the stand-in in the song for that.
1: Right, but the spirit of the movie... You know, the song is kind of this loving plea, please love me and stay with me. But the message of the movie is essentially you're surrounded by cowardice and being a man is going to end up meaning standing alone because who will help me bake the bread? Like no one is going to help you. It's a pretty dark kind of outlook. The song doesn't really get at that. So in my watching of the movie, the song and the spirit of the song is at this, I think, well-calibrated, slight remove from what Gary Cooper's character's issues are. When he's trudging around the town, getting more and more frightened and hurt by what's going on, this kind of mellow cowboy song that's going on, and it is mixed as though it's kind of wafting from down the street somewhere. You know, it's not mixed like normal movie music.
2: Yeah, it's like, is he listening to this song on earphones as he's walking around the town? (laughs) Because every time he goes out in the street and he's walking from somebody's house to somebody else's house, it sounds as though the song like we're joining it in action it's been playing as background music this whole time
1: yeah they kind of mix it as though it might be source music that it might be just well speaking
2: of source music <laughs> then like a bunch of people in the movie also apparently know this song what do you make of that lee van cleef plays this song on the harmonica for half an hour at the train station
0: why don't you put that thing away
2: and then later on, the saloon oh, pianist—he knows the song too.
0: Now you, Harve—I huh? always figured you for guts. But I never give you any credit for brains till now. What's that mean? Nothing. Only takes a smart man to know
1: when to back away. Yeah, to me, that's what felt right in this movie okay. that the whole movie no, is kind of no. taking place inside a song it's very one note i mean okay. the movie is strange the movie to me feels like it could have been like a radio play or a tv episode it sort of hmm. has this one idea so it felt about right to me that uh, yeah he's sort of living inside a ballad that's how i took that
2: that's very interesting living inside a ballad i do like that idea and i also do agree that the lyrics are good I kind of dig the song on its own, but I do also think that by playing you the song at the top, by teaching you the words that go to this melody, there is this connection that's being set up It's like it's showing you what these melodies mean. Here are the words to sing to these melodies. I heard them every time those melodies played, even when we weren't hearing text or singing them. And I think that by setting up that association, it kind of can't get away from having those lyrics just float over the whole action, having these oddly specific descriptive lyrics of what we're watching.
1: Well, yeah, here's where I agree with you. When he sends it into the orchestra, which he does constantly, I was never wholly convinced that that material belonged in an orchestra or that the things the orchestra was doing with it were really relevant to the action. And yeah, the lyrics are part of the reason why, like, do not forsake me, oh my darling, in the middle of the gunfight when you see the bad guys running across the porch of the saloon. Yeah,
2: exactly. Exactly. Sure, you can't help but hear the words Do not forsake me, oh my darling when you hear that bit of the melody even when there's nobody singing even when there's this expanded orchestration of it. They taught me, they showed me that's what this melody means.
1: Tompkin definitely tries to expand what you're allowed to think about during that like he really wants you to feel that Do not forsake me, oh my darling as you say. It's really just, do not forsake me, and therefore it applies pretty much to Gary Cooper's character's predicament the entire time, so it can pretty much apply to anything that Gary Cooper's character does. He tries to earn this. I'm not really convinced. But even he understands that there are limits on that, and he hasn't come up with any other material to cover the other stuff. So when he has to step outside of these couple of tunes, like I'm thinking of, for example, this fist fight he gets into in the stable with Lloyd Bridge's character, who's this sort of ne'er-do-well deputy, who's trying to knock him out and put on a horse and send him out of town. Don't
0: shove me, Harv. I'm tired of being shoved.
1: And they have a fist fight, and there's just the most generic possible fist fight music. Yes. Because I think Tiamkin knew... I can't really play do not forsake me here. I think he recognized it just doesn't have anything to do with this fist fight. And then he like looks around him and he's got nothing. He has nothing else to do.
2: single dot that fistfight is sounding, yeah, generic is a good word for it. It sounds really sort of old school churning along. And again, I want to say he's capable of writing better stuff. I think there's a lot of well done, well calculated stuff in this movie. I think that some of the standalone emotional music that he writes is very strong.
1: Yeah, call out a good cue. What's one that you liked?
2: Yeah, sure. For example, for this scene between Helen Ramirez and that Lloyd Bridges character.
1: Let me tell you something.
0: You're not going anywhere. You're staying here with me. It's going to be just like it was before.
2: I was pretty compelled by this kind of engaging, energetic, emotional music that's playing underneath this scene. You want to
0: know why I'm leaving? Then listen. Kane will be a dead man in half an hour and nobody's going to do anything about it. And when he dies, this town dies
2: too but as I soon as see. the scene's over I'm it cuts to world. a different scene and even. we're right in the middle of so the I'm song again myself. it deflated that emotional energy he had built up for me right away and as for you i don't like anybody to put his hands on me unless i want him to and i don't like you to anymore He made the bow. And you know, I'm not alone in thinking that having the song keep breaking into the soundtrack is kind of jarring and deflating. Because remember, I said there was another specific reason that those preview screenings didn't go well. Well, it's because the producer, Stanley Kramer, he had actually put a lot more repetitions of the song in there than are even in there now. And here, Kramer said, At the preview, after the fourth rendition of the ballad, the audience began to laugh. And I'm sitting there knowing there are more renditions coming up. The whole preview was a disaster. So yeah, after they heard the audience laughing out loud at the song, they cut the uses of it down to what it is now. But even what it is Mm -hmm. now, you know, still that sharp juxtaposition, I still find it kind of comical. It kind of torpedoes its own importance right there. Hmm. apparently you had the opposite take on the movie Andy. you thought that the song did have the right feel and the orchestral score didn't
1: I don't have exactly the opposite take on the movie but for me whenever we'd get out of the orchestra and back into the small ensemble and the ballad I'd be like all right I kind of get where I am again and the orchestra stuff I mean to just talk a little more about it being generic the movie like I said kind of remind me of a tv show and A lot of the scoring reminded me of TV scoring. You know, this kind of looks like a 50s TV westerns, which hadn't really come yet in 1952. I'm thinking of later shows. But those TV shows would always be scored from basically libraries of stock cues that were like you know argument music and mournful music and fight music and they would just lay it in and get some dramatic intensity value out of it and its non-specificity would be part of the flavor of like it's just been pumped up that's the main thing that music is there to do and I think Tompkin does that successfully throughout this movie he's definitely doing those gestures like "Ooh, this is dramatic it certainly is dramatic but when you sort of slow down and think, well, what is dramatic here? Yeah. So there's this scene earlier where Harve is kind of sitting it out and he doesn't want to get involved. And then he kind of perks up. He gets an idea. I think the name of the cue is something like Harvey's idea. He sort of runs down the stairs out of Helen Ramirez's hotel room and goes to meet up with Gary Cooper to say, hey, I'll help you if you make me the new marshal. And he's trying to finagle a promotion out of assisting in this gunfight and Gary Cooper doesn't give it to him because he's not fit for the job he's not good enough so as he gets this idea here's some music showing that something is happening it's dramatic be back in a little while and then he's running down the stairs to go to Gary Cooper's office, and here's some music indicating that something is happening, and it's dramatic. And then there's this little uh, mini climax here, some kind of push of energy, which in the movie he's just waving to the desk clerk. And there's no reason for that to be dramatic. But anyway, like, the dramatic import of this scene is that Harvey has a scheme. Maybe I can get appointed marshal if I do this. Uh, This music has nothing to do with that. It definitely creates, as you said, emotional energy... And that definitely benefits the movie, but it felt like it understood the movie less than the ballad did to me.
2: Yeah, I I mean, I think we're talking around the same ideas here. I think we're basically in agreement that, yeah, the ballad is a good song, and the ways in which it's a good song line up with things that you would want to put into your movie. When you try to shoehorn that musical material into the movie in other ways it's less effective. And I think it crowds out other scoring techniques that you could have used to lay out that emotional space.
1: I was willing to sign on to uh, just the world of this song movie. And I wished he hadn't kept turning in these other directions that kind of betrayed that plan. And you're saying that plan was so goofy. And every time he turned back to it, it gave up whatever excitement he had built up with his standard scoring. And either way, it's like a It's a half-and-half creature, so you don't get the satisfaction of either one.
2: Yeah, I think that's what it is at the end of the day.
1: Yep. Okay, so I think let's go beyond the song for a little bit. So we said that he really doesn't have any other material, but that's not actually true. There are a couple of other bits of material in here, and conspicuously, uh, one of them is for the only other character for which he's written a special piece of music, and that is spanish Spanishy exoticism for Helen <laughs> Ramirez, the Mexican woman in town Yeah. I just thought we should maybe talk about that What? <laughs> why do you think she got her own material? And for example, Harv didn't, and indeed you know his bride didn't, and uh, the kid didn't, all these characters didn't get material, Helen gets some material
2: Yeah, that's a good point well, uh, I think we might not like the answers that we find. <laughs> yeah, it. right. I want to say I really liked that performance. I think, uh, what's her name, Kati Hurado, is really striking and compelling.
1: And it is kind of an interesting character that has been written into this script. Yeah,
2: she's a sympathetic character, and she kind of has the most wisdom of anybody, maybe.
1: What are you looking at? You think I have changed? It's sort of like in this town full of cowards who get stuck with their own rationalizations. Well, she is clear-headed. She knows, she, she knows what she believes in and she knows what's go? going on. And you
0: want me to beg for you? Well, I would not do it. I would not lift a finger for you.
2: Yeah, she sort of gets to voice the conscience of the movie. I also want to call out just how exquisitely lighted she is. Boy, it's such classic, it's almost like noir black and white lighting for her face. It really is uh, arresting. But yeah, what does it mean that she gets some little Spanish, she turns in the music?
1: My hunch was that, based on how deep Tiamkin dug the rest of the time to this fairly shallow level of just kind of matching stuff that he saw on screen. Yeah, I assumed that this was for a fairly superficial and tasteless reason, which was that musicians just jump at opportunities to do exoticism. They're like, "I can do Spanish. Uh, listen to this." Yeah,
0: that's good. Un año
1: sin See, see, And that was about the level of thinking. But again, I thought it kind of helped the movie for the I reasons you were know. just saying, because that character yeah. turns out to have a certain weight to her, and that she casts her own musical sound whenever she's around uh, helped draw a little okay. bit of weight to those scenes in the movie. I just kind of was wishing it hadn't been such a like, da, 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 da. <laughs> it didn't need to be that. To serve that function.
2: Yep, I agree. I think that's exactly why it was this kind of reflexive, ooh, I know what this calls for kind of a thing.
1: It's like the silent movie pianist's kind of knee-jerk way of thinking, which is, you know, that's a number seven, and I can do a number seven. Yep. And I think he's really, like, doing a number seven here, which inadvertently contributes to kind of overemphasis emphasis on race, but there it is.
2: Yeah, there it is. Okay, but Actually another bit of material that I wanted to bring up that's in the score is his clock material. Maybe we mentioned it already, that he does this one repeated note that is, you know, explicitly meant to evoke the ticking of a clock.
1: Yeah, and I find that effective. Like, to me, that is part of the affecting part of the score, the stuff that— I agree.
2: I thought that was effective, and I liked the way that he played around with different instruments using that. That talking that we hear, you know, that just repeated note, we hear it sometimes on a piano. We hear it with pizzicato strings. We hear, I think, once on a marimbo And then it kind of gets interrupted with these surprising instrumental juxtaposition accents— kind of off-kilter surprise. He kind of mixes and matches the instruments around that talking, I think, in a cool way.
1: Yeah, and I actually thought his orchestrations were kind of interesting throughout i thought one of the most successful moments actually is this big sort of crane shot pull back when he's finally gone out into the middle of the street and it's high noon and uh he's all alone and it's showing how alone he is and we hear the song kind of echoing in space with kind of bells and pianos and strings and things Just as a craftsman, like, Tompkins is showing, like, yeah, he was one of the top guys in town. And you can hear it in moments like that. Sure. My complaint is with... Uh, with the conception. With the dramatic conception. And actually talking yeah. about the clock, I feel like pretty much I can sum up that the things that worked for me in the movie were the things that were played as kind of a backdrop against which the characters were working out this story. And the things that didn't work were the things that were played as the story itself. This is the action. This is the drama right now. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That stuff all felt like it hadn't really met this movie yet and was hmm. just going through motions. But whenever, you know, it's a clock ticking, it's someone playing the harmonica in the distance, it's a balladeer, that felt, it felt like it settled into the right stratum of my experience.
2: All right. Interesting. You want me to call out what I do think is the best cue in the movie?
1: Oh, yeah, please. I
2: think the best cue, and I think that there's just a little bit in this one of references to material from the song, but I think done in perhaps the most tasteful way, is the sort of big climactic buildup to the train whistle.
1: Oh, sure. The clock montage.
2: Yeah, the clock montage.
1: Which is basically the apotheosis of all the ticking clock material we were just talking about. Yeah.
2: And I think this is the case in the movie where the music is really used to its best effect because it's cut to the rhythm of the music. We see the pendulum of the clock beating in time with the music, and then it cuts to close-ups of the faces of all the characters we've met and all of the places we've seen. You know, we see Gary Cooper. We see Grace Kelly. We see the old Marshall. We see you know all the people that he's spoken to falling on these cuts. builds up energy and there's this rhythmic motor is a little bit of that b section of the song in there but it's at a low level
1: well at the end it's kind of that rhythm is what builds up to the cutoff
2: yeah but exactly i thought it was just introduced subtly enough in this case that it didn't pull me out of the intrinsic effectiveness of the music.
1: strong sequence. It's the famous sequence from this movie. Yeah. And the music is a big element of it. I want to be a little bit cranky and say the whole conception of that sequence and how it would use music was a director's choice and T. shows up and kinda builds the part that was demanded. It doesn't really go above or beyond the call here. That sequence, despite, you know, having cinematic impact, doesn't change my impression that Dimitri Tjomkin didn't have any particular understanding of this movie Hmm. or what it was about or where the dramatic center of gravity was. It's like someone told him, you know, build up tension, use the song, hit the clock, and uh, then we'll come out of it. I never felt like, well, now I know what this is really about.
2: Yeah, I think ultimately I agree with you about that. I think that this score would never appear on such a list, let alone so high up on this list, if it weren't for the song on its own and the importance of the song to later practices and, you know, how we come to understand songs and movies.
1: Yeah, I think this is, you know, a little bit like the Pink Panther was kind of a like, I get why you put that on the list. Yeah, it's a little slightly different from it being one of the greatest scores of all time. I, however, will also say, you tell me how perverse and paradoxical this is. I think that the scores not knowing what the movie is about might have helped this movie's reputation in the long run because the movie is weirdly ambiguous about what its point is, what its politics are. And I think that that's part of why people consider this an important and interesting movie. Apparently, originally, the writer sort of intended for him to get killed at the end because he'd been abandoned by everyone and was unable to stand alone. Then they talked it through, and, you know, he and the producer realized if it ends that way, then the message of the movie becomes you might as well not even try, and that really wasn't how they felt. So they made him triumphant but disillusioned at the end. You know, it ends with him famously throwing his sheriff star on the ground in disgust. Then he leaves town. Yeah, you can kind of... Find something to identify with in this movie if you're on the right, on the left, if you believe in community, if you don't believe in community. Yeah, not
2: just community, but communism specifically.
1: Well, yeah, right. I mean, the writer was uh, called before the McCarthy hearings while this was going on, and that's one of the classic readings of the movie is that that's what it's about.
2: Yeah, apparently it's not quite straightforward that that's an intended reading here because he had been working on this story since before that happened, and then once he started going through this experience of people turning on him, having to consider whether he should stand up for himself or not, that he started to feel these resonances with the story and the experience of ultimately being blacklisted.
1: Did you see the thing that he apparently started writing the script because someone from the United Nations approached him and said he should write a story about the United Nations? Yeah. I mean, that's fascinating to me that this is like this sort of counterexample case for the United Nations in that, like, if you don't stand together, look how awful things are. But then, yeah, that message gets kind of complicated by changes that were made to the story and it basically ended up in this form where if you think it's great to stand alone or you think it's terrible to stand alone you can kind of find your worldview in this movie Uh, Or you can equally be offended by this movie. Famously, John Wayne hated this movie. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Some people say, well, John Wayne hated this movie because he thought it was offensive that no one in the town would stand with the marshal. And other people say, no, John Wayne thought it was offensive that the marshal, you know, he's so fearful and he's so needy and that that's not very manly. You can be annoyed with it in both directions. Uh, That's sort of what I'm saying is ambiguous about it. It is not a clear message movie. And so anyway, back to the point I'm making, I think the fact that Tiamkin didn't really get in there and really hammer down any particular moral, didn't really play up any particular angle on what Gary Cooper's character goes through, has actually kept the movie in this zone of being readable many different ways. And interesting. And that might have sort of counterintuitively been to the movie's benefit. Huh. Well,
2: that's interesting.
1: Now you tell me what, how stupid you think. No, that.
2: I don't think that's stupid. Yeah, you're definitely right. He doesn't make clear which political axe to grind is, <laughs> is really going on here in the movie. But, you know, I think that betrays sort of a... Storytelling failure on his part. I think that by playing these melodies from the song, they don't really line up with the emotions on the screen. And I think he kind of dips back into them willy-nilly a bit. Let's take this, you know, moment from the climactic gunfight again. He is hiding out in a barn, and Frank Miller throws some lanterns in there to set it on fire, and so sure. that he's going to escape by freeing all the horses and sending the horses running out of the barn, and then he grabs onto the last horse and kind of rides it out, riding low on the horse and trying to blend in with all the other horses running away from the fire. As that's happening, you know, we hear this kind of triumphant-sounding, you know, major material from the song. Do not forsake me, oh my darling, and it's got this oomph behind it. Like, this is grand, and it feels like a coda. It feels like the thing that you play after he's already won. It doesn't sound like the main event when he's fighting. It doesn't sound like a gunfight. It kind of faints towards having this tense, negative, minor-sounding energy, but then it just, that kind of evaporates as soon as we start hearing some song material play. This was a big demerit for me for this score was how unfocused I felt during the climactic gunfight.
1: Oh yeah, and did you see a quote, I forget where I read it, but from the movie's editor who said, I know the movie's a classic, but I still gotta say I think all that music at the end diminishes the impact of that gunfight.
2: Yeah, well I think he's right. And this is kind of you know the apotheosis of what's been happening the whole time. This is the end point of that strategy that he had of running that song melody through everything we were gonna hear. You know, now we're here at the end. And so, well, now we got to hear that song melody. And I think how unconnected it is from the action of the gunfight is a real indictment of the strategy that he did not didn't have about how to score the movie.
1: Yeah. And again, I'll just go back to, I could have been okay with that, but it was the kind of willy nilly way he'd go back and forth between that strategy and a different one. It didn't have a dramatic sense to it. Yeah, To me, a clear juxtaposition was after the final betrayal, which is this guy, uh, Herb, who actually volunteered and said, I'll be there. And then at the end, he's like oh no one else showed up well i you know i got a wife and kids i i can't commit suicide just because that's the noble thing i needed some other people and gary cooper disgustedly like fine go home herb go on home herb and that's it that's the final betrayal and now gary cooper puts his head down on his desk in despair what is that accompanied by do you have to say go no, my darling. play straight
0: Do you want
1: oh, I then the next like thing that happens too, this 14 year old kid sh- says well i'll help I you mister you. <laughs> And he's like you're you just a kid get out of here that Marshall, gets these listen, diminished seventh dramatic da, 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 da. no
0: please let me Marshall.
1: you're a kid you're a baby
0: i'm 16 and i can handle a gun too you ought to see me
1: you're 14 and what do you want to lie for Why wasn't it the other way around? Why wasn't the kid an example of Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling? And when he's despairing and puts his head on his desk, desk. that was intense music. I believe the answer is there's no reason why (laughs) either thing was in any particular place. He just filled out the running time of the movie with one thing or the other. Yeah. And is the arbitrariness of it in not giving dramatic insight. I just don't feel like it had dramatic insight. And I was just aware of that kind of arbitrary the sounds of a movie going on, which has value to me. I can enjoy generic sounding Hollywood (laughs) mishmash. It's just uh, not, not the top 25. It's just not top 25 material. Yeah.
2: No, it's not. And like I said, this would never have shown up on the top 25 if it weren't for these external factors, for the popularity of the song in its own right, and for the commercial importance of the innovation of the song. That's why it's on the list.
1: I can tell we're almost wrapped up here. Uh, maybe we should have mentioned this earlier. So yeah, hey, Andy. Before be,
2: before we finish here, do you, do you want to hear those? You want to hear those other those other ballads I wrote for the uh, for the scores to the other movies?
1: Yes, I'm going to be honest and say yes. I'm curious to hear them. <laughs> do you think anybody else wants to hear them? I think yeah. You kind it's of. Pretty silly. Oh, are they silly though?
2: Huh. <laughs> I'm serious though. This is a strange phenomenon to me. Like we're watching. A, a guy walk around and have these thoughts and there's somebody singing the exact thoughts and naming the characters in the movie. Really, can you imagine if these other scores that we talked about, if these other movies had a similar thing happen? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, like can you imagine, you know, in E.T., Elliot's uh, feeling put upon and not quite sure what to do in school or whatever. And then if we heard a voice on the soundtrack singing, I've got an alien in my bedroom. Far from his home world, he did roam. I've got an alien in my bedroom. His fingers glowing. Soon he'll be going. He'll build a gadget to phone home. That's what I got.
1: See, what I love about this aspect of the show is there's no ambiguity about who is responsible for this. (laughs) Nope. It's just 100% clear. I'm so comfortable with the idea that every listener, whatever they think of this, knows who did it.
2: (laughs) Hey, what if in Planet of the Apes, Charlton Heston walking around the weird-looking planet, you know, he's grimly setting off to go exploring, and then somebody has started singing on the soundtrack... Here we are stranded on this planet. Wait till I find the jerks who ran it. Letting the stinking apes take over. You blew it up. God damn it. Uh, yep.
1: Yeah. I don't recall that. Yeah, you
2: don't recall that in the movie. What would it be like if uh, if that just happened in more movies? I'm saying it's a weird thing.
1: I agree that it's a weird thing. And I also agree that. It's the specificity that makes it weird. So for me, the High Noon was at the right remove, and I completely understand this complaint. Like, no, it was too specific. But, uh, you know, when they're singing My Heart Will Go On or whatever, and you're like, all right, is the me who's singing the song the actual person I see on screen, or is it just sort of a generic song? So you're
2: saying the lyrics for the Frankie Lane version, in which some of the specificity has been kind of sanded off, and it's more generic, you think that plays better for you?
1: I'm asking if that plays better for you, If that had been in the movie and they had not said Frank Miller, would that have felt a little less crazy?
2: Um, Here, let's listen to the Frankie Lane version again.
1: He rode a
0: blazing saddle, he wore a shining star, his job to offer battle to bad men near and far.
2: All right, all right, all right. I'm sorry, I'm kidding. That's Frankie Lane, the same guy, singing the theme song for Blazing Saddles, which that song was actually written by Mel Brooks, you know, specifically as a parody of songs like the Ballad of High Noon. And in fact, this is a funny story. He said, hey, well, you know, we should get a Frankie Lane type to sing this song. It's like 20 years after High Noon came out, so they put out ads, you know, for a Frankie Lane type to sing this song, and Frankie Lane himself showed up to sing it. And they didn't tell him it was for a parody They didn't tell him it was a comedy So that's why he sings it so sincerely All right, anyway, let's hear the real Frankie Lane song now Keep moving, moving, moving Though they're disapproving Keep them doggies moving Okay, sorry, I couldn't resist. That's still Frankie Lane singing the theme from Rawhide, which I love that song. Uh, But I hadn't put it together that that song was also written by Dmitry Tjomkin.
1: Yeah, I mean, he, after this movie, he had already made some westerns, but this, he really started to be a western specialist. Yeah. So Dmitry Tjomkin went through a phase in the 50s where he was appearing on TV as a funny guest a lot. Like, I found a clip of him as the mystery guest on What's My Line. What?
2: Really?
0: Um, do you compose, uh, what would loosely be termed popular rather than classical music? Sometimes. hmm In the loose characterization, yeah. certainly some of the, our guest work is in the popular field.
1: And, uh, you bet your life talking to Groucho.
2: Well, how can a serious mus- uh, musician from Russia write such a typical cowboy ballad as, as, uh, that
0: song in High Noon? Were, think... you, were you frightened by Gary Cooper when you were a lad? No, I like him in his picture. As a matter of fact, I don't think Grouch necessarily to know very good about cowboys to write good uh, cowboy songs because uh, I don't think that Mr. Johann Strauss was a good swimmer and still he wrote uh, Vludenub. <laughs> I'm sorry, but that's Well, true. you've got something there. <laughs> After all, Beethoven <laughs> is famous for his fifth. That's right. <laughs>
1: You never touched a drop. <laughs> and here
0: he is with Johnny Carson. I know who you are. My name is Dmitry Chomkin. Yes, you're the Mr. Chomkin
1: who writes all the wonderful background music. And, and here he is stories. with Jack Benny. I'll get it. Roger,
0: sir. Mr. Chomkin. Well, how are you? I'm so glad
1: he wanted to be a tv personality and i also found his memoir which is called please don't hate me
2: yeah i gotta have so much respect for a guy who calls his autobiography please don't hate me (laughs) you know like i said in the beginning he was a wheeler dealer he was uh he was a classic nudge who uh you know had ideas about how he was gonna nudge his way through the industry
1: Classic nudge is great. That's totally the impression I got watching these clips and flipping through his <laughs> memoir. It's like, yeah, this was a guy who uh, he knew he might be a little annoying and he was planning to do that. That was the thing he was planning to do. In the Bernard Herman one, I said, you know, this guy who was such a overbearing and difficult personality, and that becomes an asset to a movie. And I definitely have this feeling that Tiomkin is shameless <laughs> and not afraid to just bang out what he wants to do and that that too is an asset to a movie but it's just not as sensitive he will make these stings that are just huge after someone walks on screen and it's a surprise they get bad news or whatever and like there's a chord Or this one, which seriously makes me laugh when I hear it in the movie.
0: Don't you remember when he sat in that chair and said, You'll never hang me, I'll come back. I'll kill you, Wilkin. I swear it, I'll kill you.
2: Yeah, shameless. You know, I mean, I got that too. And that's sort of what made me speculate about how much he actually might have had the idea ahead of time that he was going to market this song as a tie-in to the movie, and, you know, that motivated him threading it all through the score. You know, that's not quite the story that we read, but I wouldn't put it past him to have sort of planned that out.
1: Okay, fair enough. If you're just saying that's your speculation based on his personality, yeah, I'm not going to stop you from speculating in that direction.
2: Who's to say? Yeah, I'm just saying I wouldn't put it
1: past him. Uh, When he picked up his Oscar for this... He got the Oscar for Best Score. I think he just says thank you, walks off stage.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you.
1: And then they come around in the same presentation to uh, Best Song, and it's Walt Disney. Reads out. East
0: Street, and Washington 4. Mm-hmm.
1: Also for oh Mitya Topkin, he comes back and he leans into the mic. Thank and you, everyone.
0: Very much. I feel, I feel like a mother of the wonderful twins. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It was
2: the first time that anybody had won dual Oscars for both score and song. Oh, is that so? I think for the same movie that wasn't a musical.
1: Ah, well, yeah. Well, that's exactly it. Right. You know, when would a non-musical win for best song? That was rare prior to this point. Exactly right. Yeah, he just seems sort of like a character who you know, wanted to be a character. Yeah. Some of that comes across in the music and some of the kind of, you know, not caring, just doing his thing, doing what he wanted to do, being big when it occurred to him to be big, You not, not being bound by what was strange going on on screen. Uh, That all said, I feel like it's a little unfair for us to sum up who Dmitry Tompkin is to us, based on this one movie and, you know, silly TV appearances. I mean, let's be clear, he was a big deal. He was like the sound of the
2: 50s. Well, even earlier, you know, he did a lot of work with Frank Capra in the 40s. He scored It's a Wonderful Life. Did you notice that the song that most frequently gets played on the old-timey Honky Tonk saloon piano for those saloon scenes... (laughs)
1: Buffalo Gals, yeah.
2: It's Buffalo Gals. It's because Buffalo Gals was Tiomkin's like, favorite American folk song. And he picked it to go in the soundtrack to It's a Wonderful Life, and he picked it to go here.
1: I I did not make that connection. That's that's cool. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I was just bringing it up to say it is extremely arguable whether this is one of his best scores. And again, I think, you know, why did the AFI make this list? Because they were kind of constructing a concert. They wanted a certain kind of variety. I'm not sure this is Dimitri Tompkins best foot forward. I'm not sure we need to think of this as, you know, how much respect we give to him. It's just this particular movie, one of many in his output. So yeah, where where do we think it goes?
2: Uh, I think this has got to go pretty low. What do you think?
1: Yeah, given the other stuff that's on this list, yeah. We're always talking about that we have decided to value the melding of the music with the film with the story. To create a transcendent combination and that's just You can say good things about this music, and you can say good things about this song and this movie, and none of them are that they meld into a transcendent, higher whole.
2: Yeah. All right. I went first last time, but I'll go ahead and go first this time, too, if you want me to. Sure. All right. You know what score I think is better than this one?
1: Uh, A bunch of them, so no. What are you going to (laughs) say?
2: Yeah, I think the mission is better than this. I think the mission was something else where there was music that I thought was intrinsically of very, very high quality— but that didn't meld with the storytelling in a way that connected with me, and that, crucially, I dinged the mission for not sticking the landing, for the climactic bit of the movie having score that didn't make me understand what I was supposed to feel about it or think about it. It kind of left me hanging at the end. And similarly, I think that this does not stick the landing. I think that the fact that the climactic gunfight at the end the picture feels so disconnected from the music in what should be, you know, the most connected part. That, I think, really betrays a similar sort of lack of storytelling consistency and integrity that I was running down the mission for. But I think that the mission has more accomplished music written for it. So that's where I'm going to put this, underneath the mission above Out of Africa.
1: I am very sympathetic to that positioning. My uncertainty was similarly about whether I put it above or below the mission. And I think I am going to make the opposite choice you did and put this above the mission. As I have been saying, I feel like the music in this movie has very little point of view, almost no more point of view than just, it's a Western, it's a gunfight, it's Gary Cooper again. And uninteresting though that is, I feel like this works in a blurry, vague, (laughs) and to me, cozy way that a lot of old movies work where like, did it sound like a movie the whole time? Yes. (laughs) Just so many movies, especially from this era, from the 40s and 50s, would call on just kind of putting you in a Hollywood zone and then telling a story there. And I don't know, I feel like that basic competence, the comfort that comes with it, plus yeah, a few moments that really stand out, like this ballad that you hear at the beginning, this scene with the clock, which for sure is a standout thing, and uh, yeah, a couple of moments of going, ooh, that was kind of a nice sound in the orchestra. I think that adds up Boy, I feel really bad about this. Don't feel bad. I think the things that we're trying to prioritize here, that adds up to like a couple more points in the category we're judging than the mission got. But boy, would I rather listen to the music from the mission standalone? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, that's where I think I'm going to put it. Just above the mission without a lot of satisfaction in that.
2: All right. I mean, yeah, I definitely mostly enjoyed watching this movie. I think it's a better movie and a better, more enjoyable watch than the mission. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Definitely.
1: I think this movie is a better watch than The Mission, despite not having more than a kind of competent assist from the music. And The Mission is much worse watch, despite having really interesting and distinguished music.
2: Yeah, I feel motivated to prop up the distinguished music of The Mission a little bit here by putting more space underneath yeah, it.
1: Yeah, understandable. I guess.
2: Because remember the mission that we singled out that one really, really compelling actual storytelling scoring moment, the penitent sequence. and Yeah, yeah,
1: that really works. That's really good. That
2: really, really works. And I think that's enough to put it above High Noon's score for me because I don't think you there's any You know what? Other... Yeah?
1: You just sold me when you reminded me about how that sequence works. All right. I'm going to move it down under the mission. Ooh,
2: this is unprecedented.
1: Yeah, because when I was thinking what well, does it go above and below the mission, I thought about things that are bad in the mission and why it was down there. I did not think about things that are good in the mission and how they stack up compared to the things that are good in this and yeah that sequence that was good in the mission was more distinguished and interesting and memorable than the i mean is this sacrilege people love this uh, clock ticking thing from high noon but to me it was like yeah i got it
2: <laughs> i really like the clock ticking thing in high noon too but i do think that that one sequence in the mission was more special that was largely the motivation that you had when you put the mission on the top of your list back when it was the third score that we had come across, that that sequence really worked for you. And that's something that you could come back yeah, to. Yeah,
1: and I had a good point. I had a point. So uh, I'm sold. You had a point. I'm
2: sold. You're sold by your own point that I'm feeding back to here. Okay, well, then we've both got it between the same two movies. We've both got it underneath the mission and above out of Africa on our lists, then uh, there's a few other things different around those. But I'm glad we came to that symmetry.
1: Mm-hmm. It feels right.
2: Yep. It feels right. Okay, good. All right. Well, listen, next time, uh, here's another first. This is going to be the first time that we are revisiting with a composer that we have already spoken about on the list.
1: That's right. Jerry Goldsmith returns.
2: Jerry Goldsmith's score for Chinatown is up next. We heard Jerry Goldsmith's score for Planet of the Apes, and boy, of all of the composers who repeat on this list, and, you know, there's going to be a few more coming up, I don't think it's going to be possible for there to be two scores from the same composer that are farther apart in how they sound than Planet of the Apes and Chinatown.
1: Yeah, there's no redundancy in this repetition here. (laughs) That's a whole new side of cinema and of Jerry Goldsmith, and this is one I'm looking forward to.
2: Okay, so how do we stop? (laughs)
1: Uh. (laughs) yeah okay so if you are a huge high noon fan and found our attitude distasteful and our conclusions abhorrent you can chime in by tweeting at us at score settlers whereas if you love the show and this made you realize truths that you had never realized before were true you can leave us a review on itunes
2: yeah those are the two options (laughs) That's what you have to do in each of those scenarios. Got it? Yeah,
1: I think it's pretty clear what their instructions are.
2: Yeah, carry them out. And uh, we'll see you back here next time when we listen to some more film music. Maybe you'll listen to some more film music, too.
1: I will, yeah. Me? Yeah, sure. You talking to me?
2: I hope you will, Andy.
1: Yes, I will definitely do that. That's my assignment, and I will carry that out.
2: Yeah, we got to talk about it. You know, we got to.
1: Before next time, I will definitely have listened to some more film music. Good.
0: Wait long.